Okay, good morning. We're going to get started. It's 9 o'clock, and I think that's appropriate in Sunday school. Heavenly Father, we love you and praise you. You are mighty and awesome, and you are the great physician. We also know that you're beyond that. You're our redeemer and our creator. You're our sustainer. You're the prince of peace. You give us comfort and direction. You love us, and your will supersedes everything that we think or desire or think should happen. But we do pray for healing this morning. We pray for those doctors, and we pray for the family. Uh, We pray for the comfort and peace that we know comes from a relationship with you. Uh, But we pray for a complete healing. We pray that that scan goes well this morning, that they discover what they need to, and they can make the right decisions from there. So we pray for Sue and the entire family this morning. Um, So many others that are struggling with physical issues as well. We pray for our entire body, Uh, but that's that's keen right now, so we pray for that. Read with our Sunday school this morning as we go back into this future setting that we will be at because of you, because of your son. And I pray that we can see and learn as believers what our reaction will be and what it should be today because of this future scene. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, let's jump back into this. It's been a few weeks. Last week we had the deep freeze. We had another deep freeze today, and I missed out on teaching this, so this has been stewing here for a few weeks. Yikes, right? But I thought the appropriate thing to get us back into this, we're thinking of future things. We're studying future things. We got our minds on the eternal, which, as I've said and many others have said, that is a very good thing. And I thought this would be a very good opening quote. C.S. Lewis says this, this is all about our hope, right? We think of The Lord's return for his church, the rapture, which we just discussed and we'll just briefly discuss again today, is about hope. He says this, hope is one of the theological virtues. This means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking. But one of the things a Christian is meant to do, it does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. So this is about action. We, we have hope in the Lord, and it isn't that we sit on a high mountain and wait for him to take us home. We have hope in the Lord's return, and it motivates us to do what God calls us to do as believers and as servants, as is the redeemed. And remember, the quote I ended with last week was this, and I, I'll bring it up on the screen. This imminent coming of Christ, and we'll talk just briefly about imminence here, should have an incredible practical effect on the lives of the individual Christians and the church as a whole. This I shared with you last time. The fact that the glorified Holy Son of God could step through the door of heaven at any moment is intended to, by God to be the most pressing, incessant motivation for holy living and aggressive ministry. This hope, this thinking of eternity, should should motivate us to do this incredible work of the Lord. It should motivate us to do that, including missions, evangelism, Bible teaching, greatest cure for the lethargy lethargy and apathy. It could make a major difference in every Christian. It should. Christians' values, actions, priorities, and goals. So perspective. This is why we study this, why it's good. It isn't just, oh, good for me. It's good for me, now this. Good for me, now I can share this good news with other people. This is incredible, and I don't deserve it, so because I love him, because he loved me first, and I I love him, this is what now I'm going to do. So that's just kind of get us back into the right stage and mindset, 
And remember, I'm going to remind us all, remind myself, when we study these things, it's all about the glory of Jesus Christ. And we get to share in that only because of him. And we get to enjoy that only because of him. So back to this structure. Remember our structure. Chapter 1 is what's seen, what, what things that are the, the church, chapter 2 through 3, and then after these things. And that's where we are, that metatauta. And that's the section that we're in now. After these things, John saw this, and now he's talking about these things that come next. So last week, we kind of left with the rapture of the church. And there were a few questions. I had several of you ask some questions about the timing. And I didn't talk about the timing much at all last week. And I thought, well, I better cover this. Uh, I better talk about this for, for just a moment. I cannot spend the entire time talking about why I believe that we will be raptured before the tribulation begins. But I'm going to give you a little bit of a defense for that because some of you wanted that, and so I'll give this to, have this to you. Now, I want to talk about this first and foremost. It's imminent. Imminent means it could happen at any moment. We get this from a variety of passages, particularly the, the parables. I think you can, when we kind of culminate the day of the Lord, being all of these end-time events that include the tribulation and the rapture, the second coming, battle of Armageddon, the millennial kingdom, they are encompassed by Christ by the concept, and Paul, by talking about it being like a thief in the night. Now, you cannot categorize that specifically to, in my opinion, to the rapture, but it includes that. So this timing of the, of the rapture, there aren't signs attached to it. And you say, well, I've seen signs. Marshall, in the Bible. Matthew 24 is full of them, and we're going to get to that. I believe that those are all pointing towards the second coming. Those are things that we'll see during the tribulation period. Matthew 24 and 25 need to be read directly with, in my opinion, Revelation 6, 7, 8. You'll see this as we go through it. But those, those things, we may begin to see foreshadowing of that, but this could happen at any moment. Paul believed it could happen at his, in his day. So did Peter. So did John. They didn't know, and that's a big piece of this. And that lends itself to a pre-tribulational rapture. So keep that in mind. Remember, this snatching away or taking away or kidnapping is what we're dealing with, what we're talking about here. So first of all, first of all there are five basic views. I'm, just gonna run, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on each one of these. What's going to happen is I'm going to prime the pump, and then you'll say, but what, what, tell me more, and that's awesome. This is to get you to dig deeper. But I'm going to give you the five basic views, and truthfully, there's six. But uh, remember, our structure here, I, this is what I've presented to you. I do have copies of this. I didn't bring them today. Some of you have asked, and I forgot. It was cold, so my mind wasn't working. But I do have copies of this. We're dealing with the rapture of the church, which I believe is going to be before this tribulation period right here. So the five basic views of the timing of them. Number one, a pre-tribulational rapture. The church is translated, taken away, snatched away before the tribulation begins. That's what we call pre-trib. So I'm going to kind of discuss my my, uh, defense of that today. Second one is what would be called a mid-tribulational rapture. Now, we haven't gotten this far, but this is uh, the midpoint, the the three and a half years point. The 1,260 days that Daniel speaks of in the 70th week of Daniel, when we get there, where the Antichrist kind of turns real twisted and begins to persecute Jews and Christians, that, that those who have put their faith in Christ during the tribulation, and this midpoint where uh, 
we're going to have these two witnesses who are proclaiming the truth, and they're able to be killed by the Antichrist, and then the, you know, people are celebrating this because they're bringing trouble on the world, and we'll get to all of that later, and then they are resurrected, and, and they're translated. So that's a mid-trib. They believe that that would be when we are taken. Post-trib is at the end, so discuss this last week a little bit, and I'll bring those slides back up, that the second coming in the the rapture are the same thing because they look so similar. And I, I made that argument last week that there are differences between the rapture and the second coming. But that's a post-tribulational rapture that we are translated when the Lord returns. Uh, you'll see me use a, a defense later on about this, that this is kind of a U-turn philosophy. That we go up and come right back down. And remember, John 14 tells us Jesus promised that he would come and take us to be with him. So where he is, and we know he's in heaven, we will be also. But that's the culmination of, of, um, of the, the Battle of Armageddon. Pre-wrath, and I know this is getting all sticky, this is, some make the argument that as we start getting into John or Revelation 6, uh, and we, we walk through the first five or six judgments, that the word wrath isn't used right away, and that because John, or Paul rather, tells us that we are not meant for God's wrath, that maybe we are in here in this world for a little bit of the beginning of that we see the Antichrist and we go through a few first few judgments and you know the four horsemen of the apocalypse that, that symbolize the first four judgments and that not until that word wrath is used that we would be taken out of the way. So they, they would say it's sometime in that first three and a half years, but not at the midpoint, but before his wrath. And I'll just tell you right off the bat, I, I throw that out generally because we're going to find out that the person who is breaking these seals and inducing these judgments is the Lamb. It's his wrath from the jump. Right away, it's his wrath. But anyway, that's that argument. And then some would say that there are, there's just no rapture at all, that that is not in the Bible, and, it's, and that's a whole other argument. But there are some who would say that. And some who would say, and I, I think I discussed this in week one, that these events have all taken place already, um, and it happened in, you know, everything kind of culminated in 70 AD. So that's no rapture at all. There is a sixth one that is kind of like a, what they call a partial rapture. Uh, we won't get into that. But anyway, those are the kind of five different views. Remember, I used this last time. There are some very big differences between the rapture and the second coming, and I won't go through these all again, but these are, are good and they'll be on the website. They're up on the screen when I'm speaking, so you can always take a look at those. But these two slides I shared last time, that there's a lot of different things that make them very distinct. Yes, they're similar, but they're very distinct. Okay, my view of the timing, and I know I'm hustling through this quickly, but it's not really the lesson today, so I need to, I need to do this quick. My view of the timing. What are some of the big arguments? I'm not going to go through all of them as to why pre-trib makes sense to me. And I don't believe that, whoops, I don't believe that that's really my, my purpose here is to make an argument for why I believe what I believe beyond salvation. But because I'm teaching you from this perspective, I think it maybe makes sense to tell you some of these things. So my view of the timing. First and foremost when we look at what Jesus promises the churches and the church in Philadelphia in Revelation 3, 10 through 11, which we covered a few years ago, but the promise Jesus makes here is that I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial that comes on the whole earth. And when we look at this, there's very little that we can say that would fit into that 
that hour of trial on the whole earth be other than the, this time of Jacob's trouble, this time of the tribulation period, this 70th week of Daniel that we look at, this, this time of the day of the Lord, of God's wrath, and keep you from it. And of course, the famous things that we see from Paul is that we're not appointed for his wrath. Now, you can't base your whole argument on that, by the way. And, and the reason I tell you this is because we do know this very clearly from Scripture. We're going to see that people put their faith in Christ during the tribulation period. And they're going to have to go through the tribulation period. But what we're talking about here is the church as we know it. The church age that we're living in right now. This time, this, and some will call it a dispensation, but this time period that we're living in now of the age of the church. From the time that Christ ascended, gave the Holy Spirit, Pentecost, until he takes us away. And we are not, the church is not appointed for wrath. There are Christians who will have to deal with some things that are going on and, and, and They'll be kept from some of these things, but not taken out of the world for that. They're going to have to. So that's a, you don't want to base the whole thing on not appointed for wrath. Here's where I land in the biggest one. I want to go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So everybody go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and I'm going to have to be very disciplined here. This is an argument for logic. The reason I say disciplined is I could spend the whole time here easily. You know me. So I'm going to have to discipline myself and, and just try to make this argument quickly. This is an argument for logic, from a logical perspective. Paul, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, now last, week, last time we looked at 1 Thessalonians 4, where Paul tells them about the rapture. He tells them about this great hope. He tells them that we aren't to grieve like non-believers grieve. He tells them this, and then something happens in between. <clears throat> and we're going to see that Something happens in between because they get a letter from somebody. They get a message from somebody that's not Paul, and Paul has to talk them off the ledge. Okay, now I, I want you to just pause for a moment. Imagine if Paul had taught them that they would have to go through the tribulation, but Jesus is coming and he's going to fulfill John 14, and he's going to do it at the end of the tribulation period. And they knew that. Paul had told them that. And then they believed they were in the tribulation. Now, I want you to just ask this question of yourself. Would they be upset at this point? That now they know, oh, we're only seven years away from Jesus coming back to get us. Oh, it's going to be hard, but, and we know it's hard, but, but it's coming. It's soon. They'd be excited about that. They'd be pretty thrilled about that idea. But that's not what we see. We see them upset. And Paul has to say, wait a minute. Wait a second. That's not what's going on. Let's read this from chapter 2, verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to put this in context, not just his, the day of the Lord coming, but and our being gathered together to him. Well, that's the rapture. That's the catching away. That's the snatching away. We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit, so some false fallen angel that's given them bad information, or a spoken word, or a letter seemingly to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So he says, wait a second. Uh, the Lord, day of the Lord hasn't started. Don't, don't be quickly shaken. Now remember, if they thought that they had to go through the day of the Lord, they wouldn't be shaken and they wouldn't be upset. They'd be excited because the Lord's coming back very soon. Yeah, we'll have to go through some trouble, but that's the Christian life anyway. No, no, they, they were shaken because they thought, we're supposed to be gone. And this has happened? What, what did you, you lied to us. And then he begins to tell them some of the details. Now, one of the things he says, 
is the restrainer is taken out of the way. Let's read on. It says, let no one deceive you in any way. That day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, so apostasy, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. The Antichrist has to show up on the scene, which we're, by the way, never called to look for. We're called to look for the Savior. We're called to look for Jesus. We're never called to anticipate waiting for him. We're told about the Antichrist, the son of destruction, the son of perdition. We're told about him, but we're not told to wait for him and look for him or, or hope that he comes so that we can be taken away. That's not what it is. Who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes a seat in the temple. We'll talk about this later and how there's going to be a new temple, but we'll get to that later. Proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember when I was still with you? So he's reminding them of what he's already told them. When I told you these things, and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Now I want to just pause there for a moment and ask you, what could restrain Satan, the Antichrist? Really, truthfully, this is part of God's will. What's going to restrain him? Well, to me, you're dealing with something that's supernatural, and you need something supernatural. And I think that's the Holy Spirit, and I want you to think about this. Where does the Holy Spirit dwell? He dwells in the believer. He dwells in you and me. We know that to be true. It's a, it's a promise. It's a seal, right? It's our hope. It's what, we're, it's what guarantees that, what Paul talks about, the guarantee of that salvation. And he'll never leave you nor never forsake you. But if he's taken out of the way, that means you are too. So some would argue it's the church. Some would argue it's the Holy Spirit. I can say both of those would work. Some would say it's human government. I, I just don't see that happening. Human government's evil anyway. And it's leaning towards wanting a one-world government. It's already leaning towards a kind of no boundaries and no God and one religion type mindset. The world's not restraining him. They're helping him. But we are. But we're fighting against this tooth and nail. I pray that we are. We're, we're, we're preaching a truth and a gospel that goes totally opposite, in opposition to this Antichrist that will show up on the scene. So what's restraining him? Well, you could say the church, you could say the Holy Spirit, but we're intertwined, aren't we? So for just a moment, I've heard this said before, it's kind of like the offensive line just stepping aside as there's a bull rush coming to the quarterback. Just for a moment, and then they step back. The Holy Spirit will still be at work in the, the world during the tribulation. People are going to get saved. They'll get the Holy Spirit too, but just for a moment. Just for a moment, and imagine the impact on the world of every Christian on planet Earth and the Holy Spirit's work through them is removed for a moment. Imagine the chaos and evil that will be unleashed because we are here representing him. So I believe that that is a big argument of logic that makes sense to me. And when we look at that passage, why would Paul have written this? Why would he have taken the time? We'll get back to 2 Thessalonians later in other discussions. All right, the unknown hour I mentioned before. Here's another one from logic. The unglorified humans that populate the millennial kingdom. This is a logical argument. We haven't gotten to this yet, but there is going to be a millennial kingdom, that that, uh, structure I showed you earlier, where we are not having children or getting married. We're glorified, reigning with Christ and doing his bidding in a glorified form where we're no longer reproducing and having children and all of these. But there will be people who put their faith in Christ during the tribulation period. And the sheep and goats or judgment of the nations, judgment will be at the end. And they will be ushered into the millennial kingdom as sinners, redeemed ones, but sinners. And they have to have regular human bodies. 
if the rapture and the second coming were at the same time, there wouldn't be anybody to populate. So that's a logical, you understand that logic there, another Christian logic, that wouldn't work because we aren't having children and we're not marrying, we're glorified and eternal and we've taken on the incorruptible body now. That's different than, and you've got people who, who will eventually, at the end of that thousand year reign, these people who were believers who came into the kingdom, they, they have children and those children have to put their faith in Christ. And Christ will be reigning on earth, but not everybody's going to believe in him. You think, how could that be? Uh, we have four Gospels that show how that could be. Jesus was here on planet earth performing miracles that proved he was the Christ. We've gone through John for months, and we've seen it. And did everybody believe? Very few. Very few. Because what does it still take? Repentance. It takes humility. It takes brokenness. It takes a changed life. It takes the Holy Spirit convicting and changing and uh, most people don't. We don't want to go that way. We want to sin and we want to do what we want to do. Anyway, that's a, another argument from logic. Now, I'm not going to spend any time. I'll just give you these next ones. I'm not going to explain them or pontificate anymore because we're already 20 minutes in. But the Saints U-Turn I mentioned earlier, the armies of fine linen, we'll talk about that. The marriage supper of the Lamb where we're given these fine linen. The same chapter, Revelation 19, we get this marriage supper of the Lamb that happens in the eternal, it happens in the heavenly, and then we, these, these saints, these, these believers that return with Christ are, are wearing this, so that makes sense. We know the time of Jacob's trouble, not the time of the church's trouble. It's not about us. Okay, so that's my quick argument. War versus wrath, we talked about in the concept of Noah and Lot, how they were taken away, taken out of there before the wrath came. Okay, let's move on to Revelation. Now everybody turn to Revelation 4. So I got that out of the way. I'm sure you now have more questions, but I had to address that, and that's the way it goes. Okay, Revelation chapter 4. So thank you for, for some of you who encouraged me to do that. Hopefully that helped a little bit, gave you some understanding of this. Revelation 4, a look into the future, part 3. Let's take a look at this. We're going to pick it up in chapter 4, verse 6b. So we covered 6a, so that's why we're going to pick it up at 6b, starting here at the beginning of verse 6. And before the throne there was, a, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. We discussed that. Around the throne, on each side of the throne, four living creatures, listen to this, full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. Whew, boy, that's quite a description, okay? And there are four living creatures, and it says there's six wings all around them. I mean, what a scene that we see here, and we'll talk about what they say here in just a moment. Now, this may bring up in your mind some visions of the Old Testament. Now, you remember, I told you one of the benefits to studying this book is that it requires you if you're listening to the Lord and, and sensitive to it, to go back and look in other passages. And we do have other passages that sound like this in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, I think these living creatures are in the world of something that we see from Isaiah and Ezekiel. I really do. Now, before we get to those, turn to Psalm 148.2. I want you to remember, now honestly, you could be categorized in this, although you're not an angel, nor will you ever be an angel, in spite of what some people think. You're, not going, to be, you're going to judge angels, but you're certainly not an angel now. Uh, Psalm, go to Psalm 148. Psalm 148. 
Real quick, I want you to understand the purpose of what angels do. Now, we know that there are more. I did a whole semester, well, half a semester on angelology, which is kind of fascinating, with freshmen for years. But Psalm 148, too, gives us an idea of what they do, what angels do. Starting at verse 1, Psalm 148, 1, praise the Lord, praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, in, praise him all his angels. Praise him all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. And he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. Let's see if you can figure out what they were made to do. Praise him. Guess what you were made to do? Praise him. All the heavenly hosts. And we will be there praising him. We've already looked at some of the songs, right? We've looked ahead a little bit, and we've seen some of the songs. First and foremost, angels, they have a lot of roles, and we're not going to spend time on that today, but their job, they were made to praise and glorify the Lord just as you were. They are in a different class of creation than you are right now and always will be, but let's not forget what they were there to do. All right, let's go to Isaiah now, and we're going to see some similarities. Now, I'm going to say right off the bat, just to defend this, I think what we're looking at here with these living creatures is more associated with Ezekiel's cherubim than the seraphim that we'll see in Isaiah 6. I'll also say, because I'm not very bright, it is possible this, these living creatures are a whole third class of angelic being. I don't think so, I'll be honest. I think the similarities to Ezekiel is so close, and I'll look, I've got some slides here that show you that, that I think it's just Ezekiel's perspective and John's perspective, but they could be a whole third class. But I do believe that they're angelic beings. All right, so you should be in Isaiah 6. I'm not. I was pontificating, but I'll get there. Isaiah 6, let's just take a look at what Isaiah says about these seraphim. Slightly different class. I think they are a different class of angel than what these living creatures are. So Isaiah chapter 6, and I'm not promising I'm going to get through whole, all of chapter 4 today, but I'm going to try. Isaiah 6, 1 through 5. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, by name, cherubim and Ezekiel, but seraphim here, each had six wings, with two covered their face, two they covered their feet, with two they flew, and one called to another said, and here's the real similarity to what we're going to see here from our living creatures. Notice their song, what they said, I shouldn't say song, what they said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. It references holy three times. We're going to see that. And it references the whole earth being full of his glory, making a reference to creation. No doubt about it. Foundations of the threshold shook, the voice of him who called, this incredible scene that Isaiah sees. Okay, so let's just take a look at the seraphim real quick. We know from Psalm 148 that we've looked at in Isaiah 6, Angels are commanded to praise God. They were made for that. Just as you are, we bring him glory. That's what we should do. The seraphim were created, and they surround the throne. Just put yourself in this moment. By the way, we didn't read far enough, but Isaiah's reaction, you know it. He was ruined because he saw this, and he saw the holiness and power and might and majesty of God, and he's in his presence, and it broke him down. And this isn't part of this lesson but that breaking him down made him ready for service. I'm now, who's, who's going to go for me? I'll go. But he first had to be broken. 
being in the presence of the Lord. Just side lesson there. Pretty awesome stuff that Isaiah experienced. But what do we see out of these seraphim here? Two wings, two wings, and two wings. They, we don't have the detail of their faces or, or the rest of their body, but we see these wings covering their face, probably because they can't look at the Father. If we're thinking of it that way, we know that we can't either, and I think that's probably what that's referring to. Covering their feet, that's humility. The lowliness we know. Think of, think of the scene where Moses comes up to the burning bush. Take your, this is, take your shoes off. This is holy ground. I think that's what we're dealing with here. This is holy ground, and that's their, their statement, that he's holy, much like Moses. And then the flight, the swiftness, the, the quickness, the, the idea of them being able to, and we'll see this, I'll put this up on the screen later, but I think that that has something to do with the ability to serve the Lord quickly, and we do it fast. We don't hesitate. Okay, so now that's the seraphim. Back to this, the cherubim, Ezekiel 1. We haven't read that yet, so go to Ezekiel 1. Here I think we see some real close parallels. This makes us dig, and that's good. Ezekiel, Daniel. So Ezekiel 1. In Ezekiel, we're not going to read this. It's a long passage. I just want to show you some things that are parallels. And then in the slide that I show you, we'll include some of the other things just for the sake of time. But you should be in Ezekiel chapter 1. This whole section is 4 through 21. Uh, We see it again in chapter 10, and we'll look at that as well. And then this, I think, parallels our Revelation 4, 6 through 8. But let's take a look at this real quick, picking it up at verse 4. And then I'm going to skip around just for the sake of time. Um, And we're going to see a very similar word here in verse 14 that helps, I think, make the connection. Anyway, back to verse 4. As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, great cloud with a brightness around it, fire flashing forth continually in the midst of the fire as it were gleaming metal. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. The same thing we see John referring to them. Okay, Four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had a human likeness, but each had four faces. Each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight. The soles of their feet were like the soles of calf's foot. And they sparkled like burnished bronze. This is a more descriptive language than what we see from John, but similar. Their wings on their four sides, they had human hands. And the four had their faces and their wings thus. Their wings touched one another. Each of them went straight forward without turning as they went. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face, similar to what we've already read. The four had the face of a lion and the, on the right side. The four had the face of an ox on the left side, and the four had the face of an eagle. Similar things, same idea. Now here's the difference before you start thinking about this. The, the difference between those two is that the way John articulates this is that they were each, the four living creatures had these four faces. I think it's a possibility that John saw each one represented. They could have all had four faces, like Ezekiel's describing here. Like Ezekiel got a different perspective, maybe. John just saw them all facing him, and he saw the ox face, he saw the, the human face, he saw the eagle face. He saw the lion face, and I think that's possibly what we're dealing with here, perspective on what he's seeing, you know, describing what he's seeing. So I think that, that they're so similar, I think there's a very strong possibility they are the same. Each one went straight forward, verse 12, wherever the Spirit would go, they went without turning as they went, Holy Spirit being involved in this. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro through the living creatures, and the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning. 
Sounds a little like the throne, too. Remember how John described the thunder and the lightning coming from the throne and the, the living creatures are surrounding it. I think this is all perspective. I think we're dealing with the same thing. The living creatures darted to and fro like the appearance of flash of lightning. Stay in Ezekiel, but go to chapter 10 real quick. Go to chapter 10, and let's take a look at this and see this has this deep. You don't go to Ezekiel too often. Chapter 10, verse 1, Then I looked, and behold, on the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim. He mentions the living creatures being called cherubim. They appeared above them something like sapphire, and the appearance like a throne. Same throne room we've described in the past. And he said to the man clothed in linen, Go in among the whirlwind wheels, and underneath the cherubim, fill your hands with burning coals from between the cherubim, and scatter them over the city. We have burning coals in Isaiah 6, same throne room. So that's why I wanted to make that connection here and what we're dealing with. Okay, so I'm not going to run through all of that, but these are the details that were given here about these, these living creatures, and I believe probably the cherubim. I'm, I wouldn't die on that hill. It, it, they could be something else. They're incredible. I can tell you this. If you were here, and you will be someday, if you're in Christ, you will be, and you'll see this, you will be amazed. You will be humbled. You will have no other reaction but to praise the Almighty who created those things. Now, think of this. Every time we see angels show up in the human realm, you know what the first thing that comes out of their mouth every time? Don't be afraid. Because they are terrifying, incredible, powerful, created beings. But the key to that is they're created. You'll see them but you'll be in the presence of the creator God who made them. For what purpose? To praise and glorify him. They would intimidate us. They would befuddle us if we saw them. We wouldn't even know how to describe them, but the believer would say, what a mighty God I have that made those things. And they're on our side. That's amazing. What a God we have. Just think that through as we go through this. All right, real quick breakdown. I, uh, this comes from many commentaries. I just tried to make it very very kind of summative and simple, full of eyes. What could that possibly mean? What could the symbolism be behind that? Well, possibly a knowledge a pers- uh, uh, of a perception that they're seeing things, that their eyes are, are, are aware, that they understand their spot and their position and what's going on. One thing to think about is angels, long, they long to look into the gospel. They look into it. It's fascinating to them. By the way, when we look at this concept of them calling Christ we're calling God and the Father, I would say, collectively and, and the Holy Spirit, holy, 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 three times for the Trinity. I think they are amazed at what the whole plan of salvation is. They look into it. Remember, they assist the believer as well. They pay attention to what's going on down here. I think that has to do with attentiveness. The possible symbolism of the faces, lion is certainly power and strength, possibly being associated with the lion of Judah as well being his servant, the lion of Judah's servant, the ox, this idea of humble service, that they're willing to be a burden bearer, to, to bear the burden. Uh, the idea of them, man, maybe, I don't know how rational and intelligent we are, but compared to other creatures, we are, theoretically. Sometimes we don't act like it, but maybe that's what that means, is that they have that sort of intelligence, not quite the same as human, but in that same world, and then the eagle, possibly swiftness, grace in performing God's will. Hard to say. I mean, the, the scriptures don't tell us that for sure. Um, good commentary on this, and uh, just a snippet of this. He talks about these four ideas, the four faces 
uh, and the force symbolism, and he kind of correlates it with these things that I put, but he says, a merging of these four aspects results in the following identification of the four living beings or creatures of the apocalypse. They are an exalted angelic order engaged in worship. <laughs> That's what they do. They worship the Lord, who bear a special relationship to those angels being described in Ezekiel and Isaiah. Maybe the same, maybe not. And whose specific function in the context of the apocalypse is the administering of divine justice. And we're going to see angels having a part of this. Maybe not the same angels, maybe. But angels are going to have a big part in administering the justice and the, the judgments of God in this living creation that is, is now going to feel God's wrath. But let's look at this song, the living creature's song. Here's what it says. Day and night, that means all the time, all the time. They never cease to say, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Now, we see similarities to this in Scripture. Notice Isaiah, back to Isaiah. They called to one another and said, Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. I reference the Trinity concept, but it's also the creator God who's always been. The uncreated creator God. That, that God, the God that sits alone on his throne that nobody else can touch because nobody else can do that. The uncreated, the uncaused cause right? That, that, that the, the, the star breather, nobody else, nobody else. And I've heard one commentary say that they say holy because that's what they know the most. He's different. <laughs> He's set apart. Keep in mind, these angels probably witnessed Lucifer's fall. And he thought he could be holy. He thought he could be set apart. He thought he could be like the most high. And did they see his destruction? Oh, yes, they did. And a third of their fellow angels. They know he's holy. They know he's separate. You know, you and I, we know our song talks about redemption. We know that real intimately, don't we? It's probably our greatest song. He redeemed me. I was once lost and now I'm found. I was, once a, I was a wretch, dead in my trespasses, but God. I, we sing the song of Ephesians too, don't we? Because we experience that. What do they see? The holy, almighty, powerful creator God, and they've witnessed that. That's why their song is about holy. But we see this in Isaiah we see this idea of holy, holy, the Lord God Almighty. When we go back, we see this concept of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. But look at Revelation 1. Seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace. Right at the beginning of Revelation. And notice what John refers to Christ as. Or the, the, even the Trinity, you could say. From him who is and who was and who is to come. It's the title we see here. It establishes it right at the beginning of Revelation. And we see they know this too. And we're going to be singing the same song because we know it too. So the concept of this, you know, one who is to come and who is right there, we see it again. Revelation 1.8, just four verses later. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, Jesus says, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Notice all these connections. Just keep saying the same, thing, same things. We've talked about this before. When God repeats himself, he wants to get your attention. He's trying to tell you who he is. Now remember, perspective, this is a setup to give us an understanding of why God is worthy to do what he's about to do to the planet. Why he's the only one worthy, why he has the right. And so when we see these in the first four chapters of Revelation, where we get the same language about who he is. He's almighty, he's always been, he's the creator. It's to remind us, he is the one worthy. He can do this. 
Revelation 11, 16 through 17, notice what we say. Remember the 24 elders representing the church who sit on their thrones before God? Notice what they do. We fall on our face and worship God, and what do we say? The Lord God Almighty who is and who was, you have taken your great power and begun, begun to reign. We say the same thing. Angels, redeemed, we all know he's the Almighty who has always been. I think we can see that there's a consistency here with this song and why we see it sung, why it's so important for us as we go forward. So what is the church doing in this situation? Well, let's get back to Revelation chapter 6, and I'm down to four minutes. This is going to have to go on to next week. I think you can understand why I had to take a little bit of time with this, and like I said, it's been stewing for two weeks, so that's the way it goes. But what's the church doing? Revelation 4, 9 through 11. These 24 elders... When the living, whenever, by the way, it says, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, the church, I believe, fall down before him who is seated on the throne and we worship. Same reaction. Same reaction Isaiah had. Same brokenness that he had. But now we're in glorified form and we truly understand redemption. We truly understand this plan compared to what we do now. And we worship him who lives what, how long? forever and ever, right back to that same concept, who was and is and always will be. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, and notice what we say, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. You created all things. Same thing Paul does when he's talking about uh, how to, he, he, he gives us, a, by the way, he gives us a, a game plan, a schematic a formula for dealing with people who, who have never really heard about God, he starts with creation. It's what we see. So we see in Romans 1 when he tells us why we're, we've gone off astray, but he also does this when he's talking to the Athenians and he, he establishes he's the creator God. But we go back to that. You created all things and by your will they existed and were created. We cast our crowns before him at his feet. Now, we've discussed this many times before. I have taught this before. What crowns? What are we talking about here? If, if we're the church, what crowns? And we're doing this continually, which is, it means they must regenerate, and we just keep giving him glory, which is kind of an interesting thing. It says, whenever the living creatures, and whenever they do this day and night, we already read that, we're going to do this. We're going to continue to worship him and give him glory for these crowns. Well, what crowns? This has to do with the crowns we're given at this Bema judgment. Now, I'm not going to, I've got hundreds of slides about this. I've taught this before. But we see this term Bema judgment or judgment seat of Christ in these two passages that Paul gives us. And what we see is 2 Corinthians 5 and Romans 14 is this word here. This comes from this idea of the, the, the root word of Bema. And it's a raised place, um, and we have examples of this in the ancient world. Uh, when we look at these, these are uh, uh, probably what Paul's seeing and thinking and what people had seen, so they understand that. This raised platform where somebody would receive a judgment or a co- commendation, oftentimes a reward, sometimes a judgment for maybe a penalty, but oftentimes a reward. We see this when people had competed in games. Uh, like the Olympic Games. They called them the Isthmian Games back then. And they were given a, instead of, when we say crown, we really need to think wreath. And they put that wreath on their head. And it was a sign of a victory. And they were given this from an elevated position as they were 
oftentimes kneeling before this bema seat or bema judgment. So that's what we're dealing with when we see that term. Now this is important to understand, and we're going to talk about this more next week. This is a judgment for Christians that involves reward, not punishment. So if you're getting concerned, like, wait a second, I'm going to get raptured out of here, and then he's going to judge me for my sin? I don't want the rapture to come. No, that's not what this is. Your sins are as far as the east is from the west. They're in the depths of the sea. What you were, which was your sin was crimson red, it has been made white as snow. Right? We know that that is true. This is our individual service to the Lord. So as we look at this and we go forward, here's what we see. The 2 Corinthians 5.10 that I referenced We must all, all of us, every believer, he's speaking to believers here, he's speaking to the church in Corinth, they're a body of believers, we all have to appear before the bema seat, that's what that judgment seat of Christ, if we were looking at that in the Greek, so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, good or evil. Now, that doesn't mean that you're getting a penalty. If it's evil, you're not getting anything. We're going to see that as we look at this more specifically next week. But what we see in Romans 14 is, We all stand before the beam of judgment, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. I think we'll be bowing in front of him, of course. And every tongue will confess to God. Each of us will be given account of himself to God. What we've done in service of the king. Now, I want you to keep in mind what we're doing. We're casting our crowns and we're telling him he's worthy. So as we think about this, and we kind of finish this thought next week, let me just give you this idea, okay? If you've done something for the king and you've worked for the Lord today and you've worked through what, you, what you've been gifted to do, let's say it's service, let's say it's teaching, let's say it's, let's say it's administration, let's say it's a talent even that God has given you and you use it for the king, for his glory and for his honor, who's really doing that? Is it you? Now be honest. If it's me, I'm doing everything selfishly. In my sinful heart, I do things to benefit me. Makes me look good, makes me feel good. I think it's the right thing to do. It makes my wife happy. So if I'm doing it in the flesh, that's me. But the things that really count for the kingdom, the things that really make an impact, and if you can, and my wife and I were talking about this. I said, I, I think, I'm not sure I can even remember those because. They happen because the Lord works through you via his Holy Spirit. The things that really make an impact for the kingdom is when you just yield and you're broken and the Holy Spirit convicts you through his word and you you obey. You do what he says. And you get rewarded for that? You might think, how? Why? I didn't do it. And you're right. And that's why you cast it right back at him. And I want you to, if you want a motivation, if you think, I don't feel like I should be motivated to do the right thing just so I can get rewarded, I agree. But you should want to do the right thing because you love him and you want to be around this throne and amongst this church and you want to throw as many of these wreaths, these crowns back to him as you can because you show him what he did in your life. Not what you did in your life, what he did through you in your life. And you can continue to give him glory. That's the motivation. Not to gather up a bunch of crowns so you're walking around bragging to other believers. That's not going to happen. That's a sinful thought. No, it's so you can just keep glorifying him. And you can look back at your life and say, look at what you did. I wasn't capable of that. It wasn't in me. 
I'm a sinful, selfish human being who does things for the wrong reasons, but you still used me, and your glory was shown, and people got saved. That's what this is about. So when you look at this casting crowns idea, it isn't to brag or show off. There will be none of that. You won't think that when you see others. You won't think that about yourself. You'll think, what a mighty God I have in front of me. My Savior, my Redeemer, my King, my Lord, my Maker, my Sustainer. He's right in front of me, and I want to show him how much I love him. What he's done for me. That's what this is about. And we'll look at that in more detail and some application to that today next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for this time. Thank you for the truth of this, this opportunity that we have to be in your presence in the future. But right now, your Holy Spirit's working in us right now. And you've gifted every believer in here with spiritual gifts, with talents. You've called us to use them to serve others, to serve you. And we do that because we love you. And we love you because you first loved us. And that love was shown to us that while we were sinners, your son died for us. And we know that he resurrected. And our faith in him, that, that faith that came through grace, because of the work of the cross and your desire to save us has transformed our lives and I pray that it is so obvious to the world around us so that we're working and these things are happening and and we're building up these crowns not for ourselves but for you the one who's worthy you're worthy and we praise you for that in Jesus name we pray amen